Well, good morning. And if you haven't already, please be turning with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. We continue in our study of this letter that we've been engaged in for some time now. We come this morning to verse 17. We'll see pretty quickly that we're coming into a, a new section this morning as he redirects their attention as he comes now back to his audience that he's speaking to directly. And he says, but you, beloved. Uh, now that we've come to this portion, it, this is a helpful time, I think, for us to look back a bit and to notice what we've seen about the structure of this letter. I hope going through this has been very helpful to us all to see, to have a more clear sense of just what Jude has been doing, why he's written the letter. And as we go through our verses this morning, we're going to be further helped to that end. His structure here is very purposeful. As we come back in verse 17 to his audience, we're really picking back up uh, where we were in verse 3. There was a track there that had stopped short. Look back at verse 3. Uh, Jude told the believers that he's writing to there, uh, that he's writing to urge them to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, contend for that faith, he says. And this is the purpose for his writing. But what we've seen is from that moment on, from verse 4 all the way through verse 16, the bulk of this letter. Uh, he has spoken in the third person about this group of imposters that they are to be contending against. His focus and his, the focus of, uh, of his audience has been directed entirely to this group of, of false shepherds we've seen, false teachers that they are to be contending against. We've been learning a lot about them. We've been learning about what they have been teaching, uh, what sort of example that they've been setting and what we've seen is that these men, at their core, are ungodly. These are ungodly men. He said it directly in verse 4. He highlighted it, we saw last week, in verse 15, uh, the extent of their ungodliness. And we heard as well last week in verse 16, we heard Jude describe the source of all of their problems, the source of all of their behavior. Do you remember that last week if you were here? These are discontent grumblers. This is the heart condition that is the explanation for all that uh, he has been exposing in them in this letter. We learned that Jude used a very unique word when he called them discontent. Not the word that, uh, that is typically there that our English Bibles render as discontent. He uses a word there to describe these guys that isn't used anywhere else in the whole Bible. This is the one and only place where this word comes up. Uh, it is a very pagan word, uh, a word used in the pagan contexts and not so much in Christian contexts, which is why it's not found anywhere else. Uh, but he picks it because it so well captures their attitude. These are a people who live out of a heart that grumbles over their lot, grumbles over their fate, as if the path that God would set before us is really that. It's a fate assigned by chaos randomness, or a fate assigned by a cruel and untrustworthy God. And so something to be resisted, because it's coming from a source that cannot be, uh, cannot be trusted. I had a, a very providential thing happen to me this last week, very timely. I think it was Monday. 
Uh, have you ever had this happen to you? I was listening to a song, was driving in the car, had music on, a song I've heard for years. And a line, the, the guy sang a line, and all of a sudden, it hit me what he actually had said. I've been, you know, I'd sing the song when no one's there. But we, I have songs that I'll sing, and if you actually listen to me, I'm not singing the right words at some places. I just never did learn them. This was one of those. But in this moment, I'll, I suddenly understood what he said. It was really pretty exciting to me. But it was striking, and I'm talking about it now, because of what the words were. I thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is it. This is exactly what the picture is of these people and their heart in Jude. The, the line that I finally got after years was the line, fate dealt you a tricky hand. Fate dealt you a tricky hand. I, I heard it, finally. And I thought, that's it. That's a great way to describe what these men have thought about life lived on this earth. There is no good purpose behind the trials of life. There's no divine intention uh, behind the trials of life. There's no one to wait for then or to rest in amid those trials. And since there's no intentionality in them, uh, my responsibility is simply to take whatever path necessary to climb my way out of them, to get beyond them. So I will become, as these men apparently have become, a cynical, suspicious person uh, who will step on anyone that I need to in order to get over the obstacles. And we saw it last week. That's what these men claiming to love the brothers and sisters in the church have been doing. They have been manipulating and flattering in order to gain advantage over them. Because why not? You only live this world once. You get the mentality that can drive this. All of this, Jude says, is an outworking of ungodliness at its core. A life lived in rejection of the reality of the existence, nature, character of God as he has revealed himself to us. Now, we'll see that this morning that these false teachers, not only are they there, but they have been somewhat successful. They have been persuading some in this church. There is still not complete awareness when Jude writes this letter to them. Uh, not complete awareness in this community as to exactly what is happening. They're in the midst of the conflict. You know, we go through, through conflicts and, and then we get on the other side and we can look back and, and spot what was going on. Well, they're not there yet. They're in the midst of this. So there's, there's a lack of clarity about what's going on, about who these men really are. And I hope that you have seen by now the, uh, the letter's purpose of exposing these men for who they really are. Have you heard, for example, how the men themselves, these false teachers, have been completely excluded from participation in this letter? They've not been addressed. They've been spoken about. It makes me imagine what it would have been like to be there as the letter is being read. We're not sure if Jude, if the letter is written to a specific individual church or if it is written to maybe more than one church who is going through the same, maybe churches in a region, could be either way. But it is clearly a letter written to the context of the local church. He's talking about their love feasts that they get together in and what's happening there. He's talking about what's being taught and exposing it. So this is a letter that would have been read to the church. And can you imagine what that experience would have been like? 
reading this aloud, these men sitting amongst, maybe sitting in the front row as someone reads this out loud to the church. And these accusations and descriptions and revelations are coming out. These men are like this. These men do these things. Notice that this is the result in people's lives of exposure to these men. And they're sitting there like big pimples on the face of that church. But a problem that hasn't really been fully worked out yet, fully understood. It would have been apparent what's going on. And yet, as it's being read, those leaders are not addressed once, not one time. Jude is writing to the people that truly belong there. He's writing to the brothers and sisters he loves that are, he's told us, uh, beloved by God, kept for Jesus Christ, the ones that ought to be there. It was to them in verse 3 that he explained his purpose. And now, this morning as we come to verse 17, he turns back to addressing them directly. And now that he's doing that, do you know what we find? For the first time, we find commands. Commands in the book of Jude. You realize this is the first time now that we will come across an imperative verb in this letter. There's been no commands. There is one exception to that. It's in verse 14. He quotes someone else writing, and they say, the quotation says, Behold, comma, right? That's a command verb, behold, but Jude isn't giving a command there. So take that off the table. He's not given any commands until our passage that we start in this morning. And from verses 17 and on, we find five imperative verbs, five commands that he is giving to his intended audience. This morning, we will look at the first two. We see them in verse 17 and verse 21. The first command we're going to see is the command to remember. But you, beloved, remember. The second command is in verse 21, and it's the command to keep. Remember the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and keep yourselves in the love of God. We're going to use those imperatives to guide us as we walk through our text this morning. I'd like us to begin by reading, and I'm going to read for us verses 16 through 23, and that'll be the portion that we read. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We go back and start with a verse from last week just to get back into the flow here. Jude, beginning in verse 16, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Jude says this, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
And let's again go before our God together, asking him to guard us and bless us as we spend time in his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this that you have given to us this morning. You've allowed us to come together yet again after another week in this world. A week experiencing difficulties, experiencing great joys and gifts from you. And we get to bring our lives together in fellowship and in worship. And we thank you. Lord, we now worship together by trembling before your word. Help us to do that in our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First command. Coming up in verse 17, remember the predictions of the apostles. Considering this command is going to take us from verses 17 through verse 19. So we're looking at 17 through 19 as a unit here. Uh, And we find this command, um, but given all that he's been talking about, Jude has to make an intentional move to turn his his attention back to his audience. He says, but you, beloved, redirecting our attention. And when he does that, it's clear he's talking about the people that he said he was writing to back in verse 1. He already designated them in these terms. He said in verse 1 that he's writing to those who are called, beloved in God the Father. And he called them beloved again in verse 3. So these are the ones that he now turns back to. But you, beloved, must remember... Remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see exactly what he is telling them to remember here? It really is interesting to think about this command, the way it's worded, given the time frame here. Jude is living in the first century. He's a contemporary. He was a a younger brother of Jesus. He's living in this time. The New Testament canon has not even finished being written yet. And yet already at this point in history, believers are able to speak about the, he says, sayings or predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their influence, their authoritative teaching, and the role that it played in the church has already been recognized by the churches and is being received as such so that it can be appealed to like this. But here, though, Jude is not calling them to remember the teaching of the apostles in a general way. He's calling them to remember something specific. Remember, he says, that they were saying to you, he uses a verb form there that makes it clear, this is something that they had been told over and over again. Remember that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Guys, remember that they've told us to be expecting this kind of scenario. It's very similar to what Paul does on a number of occasions to the church of Thessalonica. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 through 5. He's just told them about uh, some of what he and others have been dealing with in terms of suffering and affliction. Listen to what he says. Paul says, Let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you hear his concern there? I mean, he's going through great suffering, and his concern is not about his suffering, 
He says, when I can bear it no longer, he's not talking about the suffering. It, he can't bear any longer the question eating at his mind. Did, have they, are they remembering what we told them? Are they letting news of what's happening to us lead them astray from confident, restful trust in their Lord? They better not be, because it was revealed to us, and we told them beforehand that this was going to happen, and that's why we told them, so that when this came to pass, they would be able to remember what we have said and take comfort and be equipped to handle it properly. He does it again in 2 Thessalonians 2, 5, after he's described the last days to them. Uh, he says that he's reminded them about how he had already recounted what the last days were going to be like so they wouldn't be afraid. And then he says in verse 5 there, he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Those, those times, I think we've said this before, this, it's very encouraging to me to, to learn that from the first generation of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been a people that have needed to be reminded. And we've been a people that have always received reminders from God's word. It's true of us as Christians. It's just true of us as human beings. Why is it that we're a people who so consistently need to be reminded? I was thinking about that. I think it's helpful for us to, to, to consider that the part of the problem is not just us. Now, it may well be that there's something about the nature of changes that can make it difficult. Changes often happen very slowly. And when that happens, my ability to recognize and make adjustments can be difficult. I think of the, uh, you know, I've never actually seen this in practice, but the frog in the pot of boiling water uh, phenomenon you boil water and put a frog in and it jumps out, but you put a frog in a lukewarm pot of water and slowly heat it up and it sits and lets itself be boiled, right? Kids, don't try that without adult supervision. Oh, and we can try it this afternoon if you want. We can. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a reason that that example uh, comes up for us. Uh, this is what happens to us very often as things change slowly if we're not on our guard, if we are not paying attention. And Jude's reminder magnifies for us the reality that as his his audience receives this letter, these Christians are in the midst of this ordeal with false teachers. And it's clear in the verses that follow that some are being taken in by them. And so Jude says, remember, my friends, remember, the Lord's apostles told us again and again, that scoffers were going to come, and when they came, they'd give themselves away as they followed their own ungodly passions. We were supposed to watch for holiness and watch for a mocking of holiness and a rejection of God's standards of holiness. When it came, we were supposed to see it. They told us to be looking for that. And here we are, in the midst of this difficult time, being confused and tempted by these so-called shepherds, who Jude has made clear from verse 4 and and elsewhere, they're preaching a message of, let us continue in sin so that grace may abound. This is what they're teaching and displaying with their life. Does that not fit the warnings that the apostles gave us again and again? When they said, watch out, these men are coming. 
that reminder may just wake them up to some simple facts about their situation that they have been led to overlook. He describes them again in verse 19. I I know I said last week we were through at that point with the descriptions of these men. He does describe them in two ways here, but for the purpose of distinguishing between the true believers in the body and these men. Look at verse 19. He says, it is these who, and he gives two uh, descriptions of them, not three. It is these who cause divisions, and it is these who are worldly people not having the Spirit. Worldly people who do not have the Holy Spirit. First, he says, they cause divisions. And that's been clear from other things he said in the letter. There is growing conflict in this body and a growing arrogance among them. Being modeled by these false teachers. I am more spiritual than you. I am above those worldly standards that you would set. You're silly to care about that. Setting themselves apart and leading others to do the same thing so that divisions are happening within the body. John Calvin, in writing about this and speaking about the way that they themselves, the false teachers, seem to have been removing themselves from the rest of their so-called brothers and sisters. Calvin writes this, he says, Jude means that they separated from the church because they would not bear the yoke of discipline as they who indulge the flesh dislike spiritual life. Do you remember the comparison that Jude made in verse 11 when he said that they perished in Korah's rebellion? We talked then about Korah's rebellion and what those, what those leaders were saying as they gathered a huge number of the nation of Israel to oppose the authority of Moses and Aaron. And they essentially said to them, Who are you to rise above us? Creating disharmony between the church members and the leadership within the body, the leadership that had been appointed by God. They are worldly as well, in that they do not have the Holy Spirit. Not having the Holy Spirit. If you are devoid of the Holy Spirit, is that going to become apparent to those around you? How is it that an an absence of the Holy Spirit manifests itself? Or I'll ask it in a different way, and I'm fishing here. Maybe this will, you can imagine where I'm going. When the Spirit of God is present, does it... Is there any fruit that tends to follow in the wake of the Holy Spirit? Does the Bible say anything about the Spirit coming and bearing fruit? And now we know what we're talking about, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 sets two lists apart. The fruit of the Spirit and what he calls the deeds of the flesh, which he says the deeds of the flesh are evident. And then he lists them out. These imposters, their presence in the body has served to create strife and divisions. It has served to promote all sorts of sensuality and sexual immorality and perversion. So let me just read over these two lists and and think which one of these two sets of words would seem to fit in the situation that we've seen in the letter from Jude. This church context, is this characterized by love? Is this a time of great joy in the life of these believers? How about peace? Displays of patience. 
and kindness to one another. Is that what's summing up the experience of these believers? Goodness, faithfulness, it's been spoken to directly in this letter. Gentleness, how about self-control? I don't think any of us in here think of any of those words as we're thinking about the scenario that Jude is describing in this letter. But what about these words? These, these, this is Paul's list of the deeds of the flesh. Let me read these and just think of, if you've been here through this study, how many of these words have been directly spoken and uh, used to describe the situation? Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Enmity. Jealousy. Fits of anger, rivalries, divisions, envy, drunkenness, works of the flesh. Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. Could it be that these brothers and sisters in Christ that Jude is writing to, who have gone through this period of time, come to a place where these men's presence is being tolerated because of the confusion that seems to exist there. Could it be that the Christians there were overcomplicating matters of discernment because of their prolonged exposure to these men? Sort of like how the frog is overlooking some important information as the temperature heats up. So this description, when he says that they are devoid of the Spirit, ought to provide to those that are hearing him a sort of discernment. As Jude says to them, remember, the apostles always told us to watch out for people who come along following their own ungodly passions. And look at what's being created among us. Jude prays that these descriptions will wake up their alertness and bring clarity and discernment into a situation that had become for them a complicated situation. Now, as we come to verses 20 and 21, we need to notice where the actual commands are here. We've already seen the first command in verse 17. Remember. Verses 20 and 21 go together, and they they, they create one complete idea. We need to understand there is one command amidst these things, and then there are three descriptions of this. The command is found in verse 21, where Jude says, he says, But you, beloved, verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the command. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, that's a very similar uh, command to some others that we read in the New Testament. We're told elsewhere to do things like abide in God, remain in God. We're told in John 8.31 to abide in his word. We're told to abide in him in John 15 and 1 John chapter 2. You remember John 15 when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, that is the one that will bear much fruit. Abide in me, he says. John 15, 10, the command is to abide in his love. 2 John 1, 9, the command is to abide in his teaching. There are a number of ways that we are commanded to abide, to fight, to remain. And the object does change sometimes there. His word, himself, his love, his teaching. 
I believe he is saying the same thing here as he tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. But he does word it differently. He doesn't use the word abide that we see in those other places. And he words it differently because of what he is emphasizing here. Jude specifically says, the two words, keep yourselves in the love of God. And it's pretty clear what that different word choice emphasizes. God's word is calling us here to activity. I abide in him. We've seen it in Jude. Verse 1, God is the one keeping me. Verse 24, God is the one who will keep me from stumbling. But none of that allows me to move passively through this life. And in fact, if I try to do that, I face real dangers. Dangers, Jude will say to his hearers, that the guy sitting in the pew across from you has in fact fallen into and now needs to be rescued from. These are real dangers that are presented to us in this life. Now, Jude is a good teacher. And he's a good shepherd. So he doesn't just give this command, keep yourselves in the love of God. He puts clothes on it. He clothes it with three participles, two before, one after, three ing describers that help us to understand what this is supposed to look like, what this will look like. As I keep, as we work to keep ourselves in the love of God. Three pieces of clothing to help us understand this. We see the first in verse 20. And what you need to notice as we see each of these three is the extent to which every one of them is really also a direct contrast with the false teachers. So they cause divisions, remember? Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. They cause divisions. We build up. We build ourselves up. We should see this uh, description, which has the weight of a command. We are to be building ourselves up. But it's given here as a describer for the, for the command itself. We should see this idea, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, from a couple of different points of view. First, we can see this in a corporate context. It is plural. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And in this sense, it's the opposite of dividing. To hear this and to do it is to acknowledge our responsibility to one another. To be building ourselves up. Can I read two other passages to you? here? You don't need to turn here. Just listen to these. Hear how this is described in a couple of other places. The first is in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says there. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall away from following God. In the next verse, he tells them what to do to combat that. All right, so let me start again. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you hear the remedy, the protection? It is a temptation. It is a real possibility that there might grow up among us an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead some to fall away. And so he says, since that is a real danger, we must exhort one another every... 
He spells it out every day, as long as it's still called today, so that, what's our goal? We don't want any of us to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're not unaware of our enemy's schemes. We know what sin does as it persists. It hardens our heart. We love each other. We don't want any of us to develop a hard, unbelieving heart. And so we speak into each other's lives. We love one another. We exhort one another every day, he says, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Do you hear the care that he's calling us to there? Colossians 3.16 speaks similarly. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, dwell in you all, richly. And now here's some more ING describers, just like we had here. How do we do that? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we've all just already done that this morning. You've taught each other. As you saw words, decided to sing them, and joined with others in proclaiming truth, not just to God, but to each other. We were teaching one another, admonishing one another as we do these things. And as we hear, here in Jude, this description that we are to be building ourselves up in the most holy faith, we have to see that corporate context. But the second way we need to see this is, of course, as a personal mandate. This is a command to each and every one of us. And it tells us something very important about this life. If all I do is recognize error, I'm in a very dangerous place, spiritually. Safety goes far beyond spotting error. We are secure. We are keeping ourselves in the love of God if we are building Several translations, instead of saying building yourselves up in your most holy faith, they say building yourselves up on, upon your most holy faith. And that gives us that that sense that the Bible uses to speak of Christ as a cornerstone, the teaching of the apostles and prophets as a foundation, and now we build our faith upon this foundation. We must be growing in the most holy faith, growing in understanding of it. Growing in dependence upon its object, which is not a set of truths, but a person who loved us and gave himself for us. We have to grow in dependency upon him. We have to grow in our love for the most holy faith. And if we had more time this morning, we would turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. But I'll... I'll say that verse, and I'll tell you, if you want some homework today, write it down. Go home and read with your family. Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. Try to work backwards from verse 15 backwards. See if you can hear his argument, what he's doing as he builds in that passage. It is powerful to see not just how intentional the Bible is in these things, but how... how, how clearly it gives us God's will and how God intends for us to be grown. Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. But we move on. They cause, these false teachers cause division, but we are to be building ourselves up in the most holy faith. The second piece of clothing that he puts on the command to keep yourselves in the love of God, we see at the end of verse 20. And again, it turns out to be a distinction from the false teachers. He's told us they are devoid of the spirit. But what about us? 
We are to be characterized by a life spent praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, if this is clothing for the command to remain in the love of God, what does it add when he says praying in the Holy Spirit? Because this is a, this is a pretty specific thing for him to say, isn't it? He could have said a number of things here because we're to strive to live our whole lives being filled with the Spirit, according to Ephesians 5.18 and elsewhere. What is he doing getting this specific? Praying in the Holy Spirit emphasizes some particular habits and postures. It emphasizes, in this case, exactly what verse 16 said the false teachers were unwilling to do. John MacArthur says this. I appreciate how he puts this. He says, when we pray in the Holy Spirit, listen to this list. When we pray in the Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves to him. We rest on his wisdom. We seek his will and we trust in his power. Do you hear the posture that's wrapped up in the soul of a person whose life is characterized by praying in the Holy Spirit? It's what Jesus did when he prayed to the Father and said, Not my will, but yours be done. 1 Peter 2.23 says that when he suffered, he did not threaten, but kept on entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we pray in the Spirit, we pray for what is consistent with the Spirit's desires and directives and decrees. And as we do this, we display and we grow in a dependent heart that's willing to submit to Him, that rests on His wisdom and not mine, that seeks His will, not my will, and that trusts in His power. The very things that those among them here as impostors, were unwilling to do. They cause divisions, but we build ourselves up. They are devoid of the Spirit, but we pray in the Spirit. Thirdly, we see this one after the command in verse 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, and here's the third, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. If you were with us in Sunday school, you heard Dennis mention this exact command coming out of the book of Titus, chapter 2. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this one does not have a, a parallel in verse 19. It's, there's not a parallel to the false teachers in verse 19 with this, but it is very much a contrast, again, of what we saw last week in verse 16. The suspicion, the discontentment regarding the path of God. Consider this question. I spent some time thinking about this this last week. How does it affect a life to live waiting for somebody else's mercy? What does that do to you as you're in that position? I almost didn't put this example in because I don't know if I'm going to be able to say it, but let's see what I can do. You've heard, you heard the experiences of people who have gone overseas into orphanages? I think this has happened from what I've understood in a number of countries. They go into rooms filled with, with babies in cribs and the room is silent. 
And what we found from those experiences is, is that babies, when they cry and they cry and no one comes to them, they learn at a point that there's no point in crying. And so you walk through these rooms of babies and none of them are crying. When we, when we live in anticipation of someone else's mercy, we put our hope in that person. We stop expecting satisfaction in other places because we're waiting on their mercy. We're able to handle difficulty when we anticipate that mercy is coming. So what an opportunity for us this morning to find ourselves reminded of something once again. We are to be waiting on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that mercy lead to? You see it? Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let me remind you of some things this morning. And like Jude, I would direct these reminders to my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ here who are abiding in Christ. To you, let me remind you of some things. You have had God himself condescend in mercy to live a life of humiliation. And then to take all of your sins onto himself. And to be cursed in your place. You have had a Savior who has uh, had that sacrifice validated by the Father as he was raised from the dead three, years, three days later. And that Savior now sits, right now, as, we're, as I'm talking to you, on a throne in heaven. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. This one directs everything. He guides everything. And he works them all, he promises us, for your eternal good. That's what he's doing. And though he leads you through the valley of the shadow of death, you now need fear no evil, because he is always with you. And as you live in this life, his spirit lives with you day after day. And as he does that, Christ reveals God to you. John 17, 2, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This he is doing in you. He is showing God to you as he leads you through this life as your shepherd. And when he comes again, Eternal life will be yours. Because when you see him, you will be made like him. That's what's coming for you. The pain and the loss that he has led you through in this life, for his good purposes, will be over. They will be over. And he will wipe the last tear
He'll wipe the final tear from your eye. And you'll hear the words, Come, enter into the joy of your master. Now, all of these things I'm telling you, I hope this is not the first time you've heard these things. He's told them to us. And today, you get to be reminded of all the things that he has done for you. What he is doing for you now. What he is going to do for you in the days to come. We are reminded of all of this by this final piece of clothing in Jude 21. Are you waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life? Now, there is more to see as we finish out the book of Jude next time, which I think will be two weeks from now. But what do you take from the commands that we have read in Jude's letter this morning? Let me put some of these together in a single statement. We are not, we must not be like those who live their lives as discontent grumblers, who divide and tear down in order to gain advantages, who make peace with sin and find ways to justify its presence in their lives. We are not that. We must not be that. We are a people who have been called by God himself. We've been given eyes to see the gospel and hearts to love it. And our efforts will center around in this life, remaining in him, abiding in his truth, in his love, keeping ourselves there. This is who you are as a child of God. Oh, how merciful your God has been to you. What will you do with this kind word that he has given you today? Before we move on to the Lord's Supper, let's pause and pray. Father, we do this asking you to implant deep inside of us the reminders that you've given us, the descriptions you've given us of who we are now in Christ. You do not describe supermen here. You do not describe super-Christians. You describe lowly, humble Christians who continue to fall and continue to fall short of your perfect standard. But we are people whose, whose status before you is secure because we have one who has met the standard in our place. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for this reminder that what we are waiting for, what is awaiting us, is mercy. And as Christ returns to this world in judgment of the world and of all ungodliness, as we have already seen in this letter, his coming will not be judgment for us. It will be mercy. Help us, Lord, to think often of the end of our tears the end of our struggles. Do not let us get caught up in them as if they're always going to be here. Help us to remember that you call us to endure and to fight and you don't call us to a fight that will go on forever. You have a plan. Thank you, Lord, for your reminders. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I would invite the uh, musicians to come forward. And as they're doing so, I would ask the rest of you to consider what we've seen in these first two imperatives here. Remember, we've, we've, we've heard the call to remember the words of the apostles and to keep ourselves in the love of God. And I remind you of those both because we very intentionally act in both of those directions when we take the Lord's Supper together, as we're doing this morning. What stands before you here is a symbol, the bread and the cup. These symbols cause us to remember that we belong to God because he has covenanted with us in the new covenant, not a covenant that any of us were born in, a covenant that was wrought by God at great cost. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Jesus, in shedding his blood, offered himself to God, and that as a result, it says, he is the mediator of a new covenant that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's how powerful Jesus' death was to accomplish this new covenant that we commemorate. His death made sinners clean and brought sinners back to God. Let's pause now and join our voices together in praise of God's glorious grace to us in Christ.